Uh, Jesus didn't have a problem with people that's in the streets. He had a problem with religious people. How can I help anybody when I'm not even when I was not even able to help my own son? I would never do that. I would never do that. And I became that in a matter of minutes when they took my pain pills away. And I said, I'm not where I want to be. But thank God I'm not what I used to be. Ugh. This is Faith in Your Recovery. I am Randy Davis. Welcome to the battle. Thank you for joining us on today's episode of Faith in Your Recovery. We're glad you're with us, and we just know that you're going to gain something from this that you didn't have earlier today. We're going to share some insights and ideas. Uh, As always, we continue to relate to all things recovery, but I believe today's episode goes well beyond that. It deals with everybody's struggle. It's a little thing called trust, a little thing that's not so little at all. In today's society and culture, you know where it's lacking and you know what it means to your life and the struggle it creates. So we have a special guest. He's a world-renowned expert on trust building, Dr. Daryl Stickle. His career has been devoted to helping people understand trust, how it functions, as well as maintaining healthy limits while dealing with all of that. So welcome aboard, Dr. Stickle. Thanks for having me, Randy, and please call me Daryl. All what right. A, a well, thank you, Daryl. You yeah. we, we appreciate your time and everything you have to give to us here. So let's begin by you introducing yourself to our listeners. Would you please do that? Sure. So... Um, I was born and raised in a small town in northern British Columbia, Canada, um, a place called Fort St. John. And it was a small town, really remote, um, lots of resources, natural resources. So there was lots of money and not a lot to do, which is not a great combination. And I uh, grew up there. There was a sense of community. People had to pull together. And there was this belief that if you could help someone, you should. And that really has colored my entire life and the work that I do and uh, the focus I have on trying to help people build better relationships. So you're wanting to offer to others what you came out of in that sense of you had a close-knit community, you believed in each other, you were there for each other, and so you're trying to help people get that into their head and heart and lifestyle. Is that accurate? That's very accurate, Randy. I I want to make the world a better place. I've got two sons that are the center of my universe, and I'd like the world to be a better place for them. Uh, Amen to all of that. I have two sons myself. They're about, uh, I know I'm going to get this wrong, 47 and 45, 46, 48. Uh, They're both right in that raid there. So, yes, I welcome that same opportunity. Where, Daryl, do you see that our our era of skepticism started and how did it begin? Why have we taken this dive into a lack of trust, uh, great wariness about people's thinking, what they say? Yes. What, yeah. where do you see that, that drop? There's such a lack of grace for one another, Randy, you know, such a lack of forgiveness and, and, and such a, a negative story about each other. 
for me, trust is a combination of uncertainty and vulnerability. And, and when we're deciding to trust someone, we ask ourselves two fundamental questions. The, the first question is, how likely am I to be harmed? And that's perceived uncertainty. And the second question is, if I'm harmed, how bad is it going to hurt? Which is perceived vulnerability. And those things multiply together to give us a level of perceived risk. And we each have a threshold of risk that, we, that we're comfortable with. If we go beyond that threshold, we don't trust. If we're beneath it, then we do. And so that means that building trust is a matter of understanding where does uncertainty come from? How do we take steps to reduce it? Where does vulnerability come from? And how do I take steps to help somebody else manage that? And so where we've gone wrong, our vulnerability hasn't gone down, but our uncertainty is bouncing all over the place. Amen to that. Yeah. And so we see changes in values and norms. We see changes in our level of acceptance for one another, the sense of community that we used to have. We're seeing technological changes. We're seeing divides along ideological lines, religious lines, gender, whatever it might be. There's something going on where we're having a harder and harder time predicting each other's behavior. And in that environment, it makes it really hard for us to be willingly a bit more vulnerable. It, it can so, hurt sometimes, that vulnerability, yes. Yeah, and you talk about recovery. A big part of substance abuse and the challenges that we face is that it's a mechanism for us to cope. And it's a dysfunctional mechanism. It's, a, it's a, an attempt for us to separate ourselves from reality or deal with the pain that we can't struggle through on our own. And part of the challenge that we're facing is our inability to find other ways to cope with those challenges, those, those struggles we're having, or to ask each other for help. That's what trust looks like, asking each other for help. We don't like that. We like to, we like to walk this way on our own. And uh, yeah, we want it done our way in our time instead of seeking somebody who's got it together and finding out how they got it together. Yeah. Yeah, we, we have a choice about how we react to things. A lot of times things happen to us in life. And we don't have a choice over what happens, but we do have a choice over how we respond. And that's something I've tried to teach my sons. Um, it's something that I've held on to because I've had a hard road, Randy. I mean, when I was 17 years old, I was playing junior hockey in Northern BC and I was attacked by a fan with a club and he beat me almost to death. And I knew, so I'm legally blind. I, I knew I was losing my sight at the time and that I, I would have to think for a living. And now all of a sudden, here I am, I'm 17 years old and I can't think. That's such a severe concussion. I had the attention span of a fruit fly. And I was faced with a choice. I could either feel bad and give up and curl into a ball or I could try to find a way forward. And part of what I learned from that experience was what it felt like to be helpless and hopeless and to feel so vulnerable. What? And go ahead, Randy. What inspired you 
to think positive during such a dark time? What was the light? I understand what you're saying. You had a choice to make. What allowed you to make the choice you made? It's a good question. I mean, we interpret the world through stories. And part of my story was this belief that I was being prepared for something difficult, that God had a plan for me, and that there were challenges coming my way for which I would be tested, and I needed to be strong. And so there were a series of challenges in my life, and I just treated them as potential for me to learn, potential for me to understand and have empathy for others. And through those trials, I learned how to put myself in someone else's shoes, how to have care and compassion for those who were struggling and in pain, and how to think about the world from a perspective that they might have. What was one of those lights on moments that, that you've recognized and realized, I can make this work even under these circumstances? So I was just kind of moving forward through life, and, and it was about two years for me to recover from the attack when I was, when I was 17. And I was going to university, and I was, I was struggling. I was failing at everything. Um, I, I couldn't pay attention. I was so tired all the time. And we didn't know much about concussions. You know, it was the mid-80s. And so they were testing me for all these things that had uh, fatigue as a component. And as I was going through this process, people started to be more affirming of me. They, they wanted to be supportive. They weren't quite sure how. And I eventually found myself sitting on a bus. You know, I transferred to Victoria and I'm trying to go to university. And people would just sit down next to me and say, I'm really having a hard time. And for some reason, people just started opening up to me. Complete strangers would start telling me about the struggles they were having. And it felt like it was something I was meant to do. And, you know, I started working with street kids and troubled teens and families in crisis and working on crisis lines and those kinds of things to better understand what it was that was provoking this kind of response from people. And eventually I realized that, you know, a lot of the people I was working with were just doing the best they could. Even if you could see a path forward for them, sometimes they couldn't take it. And I thought this will drive me insane. And so I shifted into public administration and I was working in native land claims here in British Columbia. And they would ask me these deep philosophical questions like, what is self-government? Or what will British Columbia look like 50 years after claims are settled? The last question they asked me was, how do we convince a group of people we've shafted for over a hundred years they should trust us? And I thought, well, that's a good question. <laughs> and it gets to those long-term disputes, right? Why are they so resilient? even when they're not doing anyone any good. And so I went to Duke, wrote my doctoral thesis on building trust in hostile environments. And you know, Kierkegaard says that life makes sense in retrospect, that we look back on our lives and, and there's a story there that ties it together and makes it make sense. Well, the year I got to Duke, 
one of the world's leading academics on the topic of trust showed up the same year. And then a woman who was also one of the leading academics on the topic of trust showed up the year after. And they were both on my committee. And after I finished, they sat down with me and they said, you know, when you first came to us and said this was your topic, we thought too hard, too complex, too big. He never solves this. And so we had a conversation and we said, we'll give him six months. He'll come crawling back to us. He'll say, I can't, I can't solve it. It's too big. We'll let him chisel off a little piece of this and that'll be his thesis. Said so six months in, you were so far beyond us, we couldn't help anymore. All we could do is sit and watch. And here we are at the end of two years. We think you've solved it. And so I left and went to work for a big consulting firm, McKinsey and Company. And they said, well, you've got the best client hands we've ever seen. We're going to send you to the worst places possible. Of course. And so I find myself working with companies that were on, had been on strike, there, where there had been hostile takeovers, where they really didn't want us there. And now I'm getting a chance to apply these concepts. And then in 2001, I'm injured in a car accident. And I end up with post-concussion syndrome. You know, I've had a series of concussions related to the first one, and this one was just, it was one too many. So I couldn't work 80 hours a week anymore. And so I find myself <clears throat> struggling with fatigue and concentration. But people start to reach out to me to say, hey, just come talk to us. Talk to us about trust. And that starts a journey of the next 20 years of me helping people understand what trust is, how it works, and most importantly, how to build it. And we want to hear that uh, that formula here after a while, okay? Yeah, uh, we all need that. As we as we look at things today, trust. Uh, I've read one of your quotes. You believe, and I believe, along with you, for whatever that's worth. Trust is an all-time low. Uh, yeah. I think that fits in the arenas of the political at all levels, uh, law enforcement, mm -hmm. because of our, our cultural differences in part, uh, yeah. corporate to client, uh, yep. certainly racial trust has to be a part of all of that. And my wife taught school for 41 years first grade, but it was still a gauge to recognize how much trust in teachers has changed today. Yeah. That yeah. within our educational system, that is a battle. What What is there to say to, to all of that, Daryl? So trust is harder than it's been because uncertainty is so high. We can get better. We can build trust together, but we need to be intentional about it. And part of the challenge that we face is that there's such a, a high level of, you know, such a lack of awareness about what trust really is and how it works. And so really part of my mission is to give people a framework that allows them to take action, to take control of their lives, to actually build higher trust levels. And if, if, you know, I've written articles that are on my website around trust in parenting, trust in the police, you know, uh, trust in leadership. I've read several things. of those. Yeah. 
And <clears throat> really, when it comes down to it, it, it's looking at where does the uncertainty come from? Where does the vulnerability come from? And how do we take steps to help each other? And how do we start to generate a more positive story about each other? You know, I, I wander the world with my guide dog, Drake. And he's got such a positive story about everyone we meet. I have a different experience than everyone else does. I engage the world differently than everyone else. Because people meet Drake and they just see that joy. And it initiates a norm of reciprocity, this feeling like, how could I not be happy in the presence of an animal that is so happy to see me? And, oh, he's got this guy with him too. And so my experience of people is that they are loving and caring and they want to connect. They're just scared. They trust your dog, so they trust you, but they're scared to be vulnerable and mention that hurt, that struggle that they're dealing with. Does that fit? Yeah, that fits. Awesome. And, you know, I still have that element of, like, I'll have people say to me, I don't know why I'm telling you this, you know, but you just seem strong and safe. So where do you see, I know earlier you said you, you believe grace is something that's lacking in the middle of all this trust. Okay. I forget exactly how you said it, but that's, that's what it boils down to. Are our political biases, our political lack of trust, our our lack of trust with medical as we was so apparent during the uh, COVID-19 issues, uh, our social and relational lackings. Do you believe those are symptoms or are they problems? So they're, they're symptoms of underlying trust problems. But we've also got a a subset of the population who are very dedicated to destroying trust because they feel it benefits them in the short term. And and we see this with the the vilification they have of other people, the stories they tell about others. You know, we we see people undermining the credibility of the World Health Organization, undermining the credibility of doctors and scientists, undermining the credibility of the media. We see this sort of us and them really evolving. And, you know, I, I often ask leaders, would you like to be in politics? Would you like to be a political leader? And the response I get from most of them is I wouldn't put my family through that. So we end up getting a bunch of people who are quite comfortable putting their family through that. We end up getting a bunch of people who are really more concerned about their own power and well-being they don't give a crap about anybody else and one of the levers that i talk about so i i think there are 10 levers we can pull one of the levers i talk about is benevolence this belief that you've got my best interest at heart and that you'll act in my best interest we have an expectation or at least we should have a reasonable expectation that the politicians we elect should be acting in our best interest, not their own. And we're not getting that. 
And they formulate distrust by promoting this sense of vulnerability, by telling us, if I don't get elected, the world will end. If you don't do what I want, then there's going to be dire consequences. And all these people out here, we got to get even with them, or we got to, you know, stamp them out. And it's true of both sides. And so when we have benevolence and it actually lands, people give us the benefit of the doubt. They assume that we have the best intentions possible. And so they will ask us if something lands wrong. They'll say, oh, that, that didn't quite land right, or I'm curious about that, or I'm, this is a way that that could be interpreted. I'm sure that's not how you meant it. It gives us the opportunity to actually have a conversation, get to know each other as human beings, rather than stereotypes. Stereotypes limits our thinking tremendously and our yeah. listening as well, because we've already heard everything we want to hear when I've determined you're who I think you are. And it's going to be very difficult for you to get out of that. So I, I'm reminded of the adage that perception is stronger than truth. How does that fit into what we're talking about here? Yeah, we interpret the world through stories. And we search for confirming evidence of those stories. And the more powerful that story is, the harder it is for us to actually see the world in an objective way. And so a big part of what I do is help people ask, listen, and respond. So that I give them a series of questions to ask so that they can get a better sense of what the other person's story is, where the gaps might be in their ability to build trust with that person. Give us a couple of those questions, please. So one of my favorite levers is benevolence. And what I will do with folks is I'll say, here's what you're going to try. And this is what your listeners can give a try. We start off by saying, I heard this guy, Daryl, he was talking about trust. And he said that benevolence was really important. And, and that means having someone's best interest at heart, having their back. And so I said, you're going to say to someone, I think I do that. I think I act in people's best interest, but it doesn't always seem to land that way. Have you ever experienced that? And the other person's going to go, oh, yeah. I mean, for you, Randy, have you ever had someone's best interest at heart and it didn't land the way you wanted it to? Absolutely. Right. And so now we can start to get a little curious about, well, what did you try? What did it look like? How did they respond? And we're starting this conversation. Then we start to narrow the funnel. And I say to you, Randy, have you ever had someone really have your back? Have you ever had the experience of someone really looking out for you? And you start going, yeah. I say, well, tell me about that. I get curious. And when I say, what did they do? What did it look like? How did it feel? And now I'm getting hints. I'm getting a sense of what benevolence looks like for you. And then I narrow the funnel further. And I say, Randy, what would success look like for you? How do I help you get there? What would it look like if I was benevolent to you? And now we've created a moment for transparency. Because once you tell me what benevolence looks like for you, 
I can refer back to that in later conversations. I can say, Randy, you remember when you told me that you wanted to have a positive impact in the world? Well, this is me trying to help you do that. And so there's a, a reduced probability of misinterpretation or crossed wires. And we can make sure that our, our intent lands properly. What do, you, what do you believe it is that's keeping us from wanting to go into that area of benevolence, that having somebody else's back or someone else having our back? Uh, are we scared of the transparency you mentioned or what? Yeah, help me out. I think, you know, when I talk to people, so three of the levers are benevolence, integrity, and ability. Benevolence is that belief you've got my best interest at heart. Integrity is, do I follow through on my promises and do my actions line up with my values? And then ability is, do I have the competence to do what I say I'm going to do? We pull the ability lever a lot. You know, I have these kinds of credentials, this background, this much experience. When we start to talk about the integrity lever, people get a little more uncomfortable because it's like, well, I think I live by my values, but I don't always tell that story. When it comes to benevolence, we have a harder time. And a big part of it is we just don't include the other person in that conversation. So I'll be standing in front of a group of parents, you know, when I'm uh, working with families and I'll say, who here has their kid's best interest at heart? And all the hands go up and I'll say, well, how many of your kids would say that? It's about a third and it's somewhat hesitant. So if it's not obvious in a place where it's supposed to be obvious, how do we make it come across when we're colleagues or or friends, or coworkers, or if I'm your boss. Well, I don't know what your best interests are. I may make assumptions. And then I'm hoping that you interpret my actions in that light. Because benevolence isn't always about being nice. Sometimes it's about giving you the tough feedback when you really need it. Sometimes it's about stopping you from doing something that's self-destructive. You know, when we talk about recovery, the best interests of someone I'm trying to help recover is, is not to give them more substances. It's to try to create an environment where they feel safe and able to cope with the challenges that they're facing without having to lean on that crutch. So we all, so I think part of it is just, we're not intentional enough. We're not including other people in the conversation enough. Can we, and I hope I know the answer to this already. Can, can we, today's people, get to the point of allowing our trust to outweigh our doubt? Yes. Absolutely. How? How? I know you've talked about benevolence, intentionality, the other, uh, yeah, abilities. Benevolence, integrity, and ability? Yes. And, and setting up, so uncertainty comes from two places. It comes from us as individuals, and it comes from the context we're embedded in. To the extent I'm able to explain how I'm constrained to you, it makes it easier for you to predict my behavior. I've seen people have incredible results in a very short period of time. And part of it is being more open, having a shared vocabulary, I mean, I wrote my book so that people could have access to the model. And so that if, you know, God forbid I get hit by a bus, 
the things I know don't go away. And I felt like I was dropping grains of sand in the ocean. I need people to come alongside and pick up great big rocks. You know, I worked with a student and, and all of my courses and my workshops and my coaching involves people actually trying these things, applying these things and adding them to their toolkit. And so I worked with a dad who was struggling with his sons and there were five and three. And he said, I've been away for most of their lives. I think their relationship's broken forever. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. I feel like I lose my temper. They're scared of me. They don't know me. And so after three months, I'm coaching him and he's using the materials, he's using the model. And so he's pulling the benevolence lever and he's pulling the integrity lever and he's pulling the ability lever and he's explaining his context to them. After three months, his final report is everything's changed. Now they run to me. They throw themselves on me. They tell me they love me. They fight over who gets to sit next to me at dinner. They beg me to read them stories. It's a complete transformation. I want that for everyone. Is, would you say it's easier at that three to five age than the 15 to 17 age? Or how does that dynamic change or grow or differ? So it does transform. But I know with my sons, you know, they're 19 and 22 now. There's that awkward period when they're trying to separate, trying to forge their own identity. And for most parents, that means that there's a struggle, right? And they're trying to separate. And a lot of that stems from our use of command and control style, right? And they have to fight to get free. And the harder we hold on, the harder they have to fight. And the more damage it does to that relationship. And I'm smiling because you're telling us my story when my sons were in that age frame. I get this. Please go ahead. Yeah. So for me, I I just went a different way. I said to them, if my vulnerability is really high, I can't tolerate a lot of uncertainty. And I'm never more vulnerable than when it comes to you. And so one way for us to reduce our uncertainty is to monitor them and try to control them and try to keep them under our thumb. The other way is for them to actually tell us what's going on. And I said to my sons, I need to know what's going on because otherwise I've got the worst case scenario going through my head. Absolutely. I I can't tolerate a lot of uncertainty. It, It terrifies me. And so we never had that break. They just evolved into the people they were going to be. And I let them do that. And I came alongside and coached. And you know what? No one cares more about them than I do. I want them to turn to me when they're struggling with something. So when my oldest was 16, I was walking him to the baseball park for his practice. And all his buddies are hanging out there. And he turns to me, gives me a huge hug, says in front of his buddies, I love you, dad. And all the other parents are looking at me going, how the hell did you do that? (laughs) And so it's this case of, you know, building that relationship. 
and I focused on using the model with my sons and being transparent about it. And it future-proofed them. You know, my oldest is now in the States going through uh, university and all the challenges that that, propose, that puts in front of him. And he's thriving. And he says, you know, it's because of what I learned. I establish really strong relationships with everyone that I connect to. And it makes life just so much easier. So for me, you know, there was a lot of this work on reducing their uncertainty about how I was going to respond and how I was going to react. And they, you know, when, when Thomas, my oldest was 12, he looked at me one day and he said, dad, even when you're upset with me, I know it's about what's best for me. He said, I know it's not about, you know, your best interest or what's easiest for you or you're embarrassed or whatever. You're always focused on what's best for me. Once they've got that story, Randy, we get so much grace. Certainly. One thing I've, one word I've heard you use several times is transparency. And I yeah. think that is the key in all relationships and not just trust aspect of it, but the fact of being genuine, being real. Uh, yeah. If we went on, I'd say consistent and persistent. Uh, right. But it all fits, and that's that's a neat way to think. Where has our lack of trust, our weariness, our despair, where? How much role has that played in today's mental health crisis, which my background comes from addiction recovery and all, and I certainly know a lot of the mental health issues there. So how does this trust or lack of relate to mental health issues in today's culture? It's a huge element, and, and we're seeing things are changing so quickly. You know, the norms and values are shifting. It's, it's hard to know what our roles really are. Um, and, and we've seen a decline in the social skills of a lot of the kids that are coming out. You know, one of the things that I know is that, for me, a hard road was a good teacher. We sometimes go out of our way to protect our kids from experiencing difficult challenges. And it doesn't always serve them well. One of the things I learned was that I was sort of pointing out to my kids, like I talk about stepping on a rake. You know, you step on a rake and the handle comes up and pops you in the nose. And I'd say to my kids, oh, look out, there's a rake. Look out, there's a rake. And then I realized all they're learning is that dad knows where the rakes are. <laughs> and so I had to let them step on the odd rake and then come alongside and go, oh, man, that looked like it hurt. How could we have avoided that? And how are we going to react now? And so that they started to learn for themselves about how to avoid some of those things. I'm thinking of the dog with that new invisible fence that it takes him yeah. a time or two to uh, get us a quick jolt before he realizes, I don't want to cross that line. And so we're, we're denying them the ability to develop the coping skills of dealing with challenges. And, and then all of a sudden they hit a spot where it's like, Hey, I'm supposed to be an adult. 
and I haven't faced the challenges that I was supposed to face to get here. And I don't know how to cope yet. And we're seeing people really struggle because the challenge when uncertainty is high is trust is the willingness to make yourself vulnerable. Well, if uncertainty is really high, then it's really hard for me to make myself just a little bit more vulnerable. And so what we need to do as leaders and as parents and as counselors is go first. We need to make ourselves a little bit vulnerable so that it shows them that it's okay. We need to model that behavior for them so that they realize, okay, it's okay here. We've got to be able to show them the deep waters at times and those danger areas. We can't make them observe, but it's our role to show in my mind. Do you think our... All of this is a reflection of a lack of belief in ourselves, or are we just reaping the fruits of negative thinking? Oh, that's a really good question. I think there's a combination, you know, social media has provided us with tremendous benefit, but it's also caused tremendous damage. We see the Facebook effect where everyone sees everyone else's best self and they compare themselves to that and go, oh my God, everyone's doing so much better than me. Um, and we see people engage in behavior. You know, there's this comedian, Bill Burr. He said, you know, my behavior would change dramatically if I thought I wasn't going to get punched in the face for being a jerk. And so we see people engaged in poor behavior with very little consequence. And so they haven't figured out how to work together or live together or be together. I I had this great conversation with Mark Devine. He's an ex-Navy SEAL. And he said, for me, benevolence is in the SEALs you're taught, your responsibility is the success of the guy next to you. He said, so if I'm on a team of eight people, there are seven people looking out for me who are focused on me being successful, on my best interest. It's not competitive. Not competitive. No, we have a goal together. And I know when I was younger, you'd go through this phase where you kind of talk crap to one another and you give each other a hard time. It's, it's that sort of minute evolution from picking on a girl you, you liked when you were a little kid. You don't know how to express your emotions in a positive way. So you kind of pick at each other, right? And it's hard for us to tell the positive story about someone else because it feels like it might diminish us. And what real strength looks like, Randy, is me appreciating you and being able to tell other people what an amazing job you're doing and not feel diminished by that. You know, it. Your, I get what you're saying. I get it in a scriptural way. When Christ says we're to lift others above ourselves, that's not mm-hmm. a put down to me. It doesn't make me less of a person. But if I take joy and pleasure in seeing you grow, mature, improve, uh, I get ride that wave with you. So, yeah. yeah. 
I'll tell you what, here's what I'd like to do. We're going to kind of close this episode out, and we'll put you into another episode here. But we've had with us Dr. Daryl Stickle, world-renowned expert on trust building out of uh, Texas. Yes? Is that where you No, Victoria, British Columbia. Oh, you're coming to us. You're still there. Okay. I don't know where I got the Texas there's a few miles difference all right well thank you i know you mentioned that earlier well from victoria british columbia so thank you uh even for a longer journey here but great and we're going to come back here in a few moments we've been talking about some of the groundwork for building and rebuilding trust We're going to come back. I want to hear those 10 levers, all 10 of them. And we want to talk about how we can improve ourselves when it comes to trust and rebuilding trust in those who have legitimately and factually broken it with us. But what are healthy limits? So thank you. We appreciate it. God bless folks. Hang in there. Hang on. Come back for our next episode. God bless.